down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. I'm Robin Hawkins, and you're listening to Watered Down Women. Hoping to be free, found a new home in the cemetery. In our minds, especially during dark moments, we ponder certain whys. Why do we have nightmares? Why do we make bad choices? Why do some friendships simply fade away? And a why question that nearly everyone has asked is why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes this question is asked in anger and at other times it's contemplated out of an innocent desire to make sense of the senseless. When I was a junior in high school, a required reading in my English class was a book by Thornton Wilder called The Bridge of San Luis Rey. In this novel, which is set in Peru during the 1700s, a rope bridge breaks and five people plunge to their deaths. A local monk who was approaching the bridge to cross it witnessed the collapse and then sets out on a quest to prove that it was divine intervention and not mere chance that led to the death of those five travelers. Although there isn't much I remember from my high school days, that book and the emotional reaction I experienced while reading it probably have the single most significant effect on me more than anything else from that time in my life. The author himself said that the central meaning of the book was simple. Is there a direction and meaning in life beyond the individual's own will? For me, it began a passion for trying to better understand the human condition and its key elements, such as physical and emotional development, aspirations, morality, and mortality. Another major theme from the book is the importance of love. Each of the five who died sought love and felt rejected, yet their love lived on. I think most of us can relate to being rejected by someone we love, be it a romantic interest, a parent, or someone else we held fondness or affection for. But this is a topic we can explore at a later time. So when we consider the connection between death and free will, does an individual's behavior and actions truly come into play? And what if he or she is an infant when they die. In today's episode of Watered Down Women, we'll begin an exploration into this question and ask who really was responsible for these tragedies, or was it simply beyond anyone's control? In order to get the full picture, we need to look at who, 
what, when, where, and how. But we may never know the why. The year was 1949, and we've learned in past episodes that this was one of the greatest eras of economic expansion, not only in the Americas, but in the world. This time became referred to by many as the Golden Age of Capitalism. Throughout our country's history, the United States has been known as a nation that cares about human beings. And after World War II, although the U.S. had already been providing financial aid to Europe, the Marshall Plan of 1948 made it official. And over the next four years, the U.S. government gave $13 billion in assistance to Western European countries. But other nations were feeling neglected. So in his inaugural address on January 20th, 1949, President Harry S. Truman announced his Point Four program with the hope, in his words, to win the hearts and minds of the people in the developing countries of the Middle East, Latin America, Asia, and Africa, who had complained about the United States' emphasis on aiding mainly those European nations. Mr. Truman said, we must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. More than half the people of the world are living in conditions approaching misery. Their food is inadequate, they are victims of disease, their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their poverty is a handicap and a threat, both to them and to more prosperous areas. For the first time in history, humanity possesses the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people. Mr. Truman, our nation's 33rd president, seemed very concerned about the well-being of people elsewhere. And while our government focused on the needs of global citizens, much was happening right here in America. A growing consumer demand, fueled by employment from industrial expansion, led to a housing boom in most factory towns. With manufacturing plants opening across Richland County, Mansfield, Ohio was one of those communities that benefited from the increase in economic development. Modern wares, ranging from appliances to automobiles, were being built here, and steel was very much in demand for those high-volume orders. With an increased need for materials and a limited number of workers available, the local steel mill became a mecca for Kentuckians seeking employment. Soon, the neighborhood surrounding Mansfield's Empire Detroit Steel Company became known as Little Kentucky because of the number of Olive Hill, Kentucky residents who migrated to that area. One lady, 
whose family was among those transplants, remembered her dad saying a bus was sent to Olive Hill to collect workers for the mill in Mansfield. And it's believed that between 1945 and 1949, over 500 houses were built in an approximate one square mile area of the city's north end. Having grown up in that neighborhood, I know firsthand that no housing quality standards were applied during their construction. I've shared in past episodes that our family home originated as the two-room chicken coop. But when my grandpa purchased it, he added on more rooms, and before 1960, it was the first house on the road and one of only a few in the entire area to have indoor plumbing. A question that has crossed my mind countless times over the years is how was that allowed to happen? My research found that in 1949, the health commissioner for Richland County and the city of Mansfield, Dr. Harry Wayne, reported during a meeting held with the Optimist Club at Mansfield's Leland Hotel that there were nearly 10,000 people living in the city's fringe areas who had neither proper water supplies nor satisfactory sewage disposal. He added that the explosion of substandard housing was unpreventable because Richland County did not have a zoning ordinance to prevent the expansion of what he called shack cities. A photograph in the local paper from 1949 shows a house in Mansfield's North End with the title, Tar Papered Home, and a caption that read, Houses like this sprung up in the suburban areas north of the city to house war workers and some of the buildings still serve as residences. Another picture on the page is titled, Nice Ones Too, and its caption describes two of the neat houses in the country club allotment. Given a choice in the matter, I'm sure that Sarah Schoffer would have much preferred to live in a fine brick colonial or a splendid Victorian-style home on Mansfield's south side. But given her life circumstances, she was probably quite grateful to just have a place to call her own. We've already learned that her father was beaten to death when she was barely a teenager, and her mother literally worked herself to death. Sarah was then rescued by a kindly woman who removed her from a dubious boarding house and later introduced her to a man who had recently returned from the Civilian Conservation Corps. Not long after they met, Sarah married the same man whose name was Henry Adkins, and that neither of them had an education level beyond primary school. Employment was hard to find, especially since the United States had just entered into World War II. Before celebrating their first wedding anniversary, they welcomed their first child, and Sarah was already expecting their second. 
Over the next few years, their lives were spent searching for work and housing as their transient lifestyle alternated their time between Kentucky and Ohio. In the early spring of 1949, they packed up their belongings and traveled once again to Mansfield, Ohio and settled into a one-room house owned by Henry's sister. By this time, the couple had five children, including their newborn son, Clinton Scott, or Scotty, as his older siblings affectionately called him. Henry worked a series of odd jobs, but had trouble finding permanent and full-time employment. So he and Sarah made do with their scarce furnishings and inadequate living conditions. Sarah made friends easily and was well-loved by the women in the neighborhood, and Henry's sisters were extremely fond of her. Although she was busy with her own children, she never failed to give attention to all of the neighborhood kids, especially those who were hungry. She was described as someone who would go without before she would let anyone's child go hungry. Despite her difficult circumstances, Sarah was known for her sense of humor, ready smile, and the ability to always find the best in any situation. Until that summer arrived. That horrible, heartbreaking summer. Last week, I warned you that we have a lot of digging to do. And if you are a descendant of any of the following women and would like to share a memory on her behalf, send an email, including how you are related, to wateredownwomen at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook to leave a comment there. Because that summer, Sarah wasn't the only mother who would be asking why. Within a few short weeks, these eight other moms cried out in that summer of sorrow. Mrs. Alfred A. Carroll, Mrs. Charles Brown, Mrs. Martin Helmick, Mrs. Albert Twyman, Mrs. Troy Salyers, Mrs. James Kleinage, Mrs. Joseph Bryant, and Mrs. Burl Perry. Water down women with diluted dreams are home for joy has been washed down the stream. Grab a shovel and join me each Monday as we dig a little deeper and uncover the tragedies of watered-down women. Searching for love, no pain in this world, with no help from above.